The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. We're set up differently than we normally are. I'm sitting a different place and the altar is a different place. And um, because today we're going to celebrate um, Buddha's, uh, what's called Visak, um, kind of colloquially around here, it's called Buddha's birthday celebration. But it's, uh, it's the holiest day for our tradition of Theravadan Buddhism. And it's a, it's very efficient uh, tradition because we celebrate the Buddha's birthday, his day of his enlightenment and day of his death all on the same day. Maybe so we can get, we can get, over, it, get over it and then we can go back and meditate or, or, or something. And, um, but it's, I think it's very nice. It makes it a very, very kind of powerful day. And the, the, the reclining Buddha there is the Buddha, uh, that's the position where the Buddha uh, passed away in. So that represents his death. And here's the Buddha sitting, in, uh, he's, his hand just goes down over his knee. And that's the moment of his enlightenment. And then what's going to be brought in here is the baby Buddha. So if you've never seen a baby Buddha before, you'll see one come in. And uh, that's a, a tanka, that painting up there is a painting of a central figure is the Buddha, uh, before he was a Buddha, he was a prince, deciding to go out and become a renunciant and seek enlightenment. Uh, he's cutting off his long hair. So it's this moment of his renunciation, and, uh, which is considered an important time. And uh, you, you maybe can kind of uh, try to uh, figure out the symbolism or something, the reason why I was given that. Um, so the Buddha, that was given to me um, on my wedding. The painting of the Buddha renouncing the world. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so I want to do this a little bit, uh, maybe uh, to talk about this a little bit, maybe from a different, unusual uh, direction. Um, the uh, father, or we say father, but maybe the parent of sociology, the modern study of sociology, is a man named, a French man named Emile Durkheim. And uh, among his other things he studied, he studied uh, religions. And I think his primary study was probably the religions of Europe. And uh, he came up with a theory, maybe a controversial theory, but very, very famous in sociology theory, about uh, religion and about um, the, uh, the function of God in theistic religions. And it can be translated to other religions, a theory to other religions that don't have God, like, like towards the Buddha. And, uh, the, um, and that is that one of the functions of this idea of God or this image of God that people have is as a repository of the values of, that a society has. And so they tend to project it onto this kind of idea. And so it becomes a condensation or a concentration of uh, collective values, um, uh, social values, also sometimes values of, uh, of so, um, you know, um, how people live together, values of power, values of all kinds of things that kind of get concentrated in there. And so rather than it being, so as a sociologist, he wasn't studying whether God exists or doesn't exist, but rather how that idea of God functioned in society. And he had studied different societies and saw that, in fact, that, that their ideas of God 
um, ha- had different functions or, or projected different ideas on it depending where we went. And so, whereas Buddhism doesn't have a god, it has the Buddha. And the same thing happens in Buddha societies. That um, Buddha is a projection, um, for the most part, in, in, of people's values, priorities, the stories, what's important for them in their lives. It tends to get projected on. And then as a society does that, then it also feeds back, as a you know, feedback loop, that the people who grew up with those um, uh, they then uh, internalize the values that have been projected onto the Buddha. So there's a feedback loop, right? Uh, except when you come to a new society, a new country, a new culture, then it gets a little bit mixed up because the, the values of the new culture get mixed up with the values that come with uh, you know, the, the importation of Buddhism, and then it gets, it gets shaped in different ways. And one way that you can see this, uh, or represents this idea, is you can go to like something like the Asian Art Museum and look at the Buddha figures there. And uh, the Buddha figures, the statues, uh, you know, just, you know, no one knows what the Buddha looked like. There's no photographs, no paintings, nothing left over. And, um, and so, um, uh, what, um, uh, but you see, and the Buddha image is created in different cultures, remarkably look like kind of the people of that society. So they're kind of making the, the Buddha statue in their own image, kind of. And, um, and so when, um, and, all, and not only how, so when, when, um, uh, when Buddhism, the first images of the Buddha were made in a kind of a Greek colony in Afghanistan that was Buddhist. They, we don't know the Greeks, you know, you know, Alexander went east and conquered the part of the world and left behind the kind of Greek colonies. And so the first statues that we have of the Buddha were made by Greeks. And remarkably, surprisingly, <laughs> it looks kind of Greek. <laughs> what San Francisco Zen Center in San Francisco 50 years ago was getting established. They created their center for mostly convert Western, mostly white Buddhists. Um, they uh, were had to kind of populate their altar with a Buddha. And so they thought it was really nice to have a Greek Buddha because, you know, it represents the White West. <laughs> and, uh, and so then it's fair to ask, you know, you know, if that represents at least the image of a, you know, I think the idea was to support the white people so that they could feel that the Buddha, they could relate to the Buddha image maybe. Were you there at that time? Would you, do you have a theory about why they got a Greek Buddha on the altar? Yeah, but... So it's a beautiful Buddha because made of sandstone. Just because it was beautiful. I heard it was partly because it was, had this Greek image. A mingling of both traditions. So Asian and, and, and kind of European kind of in, in the face and the clothes, kind of the robes were kind of more Greek-like. And, um, and so uh, we have this mingling. So in the statues, we find these, you know, aesthetic values and and, uh, and some, sometimes that comes along with certain ideas of what we're mingling, you know. So maybe at San Francisco Zen Center there's the idea of mingling Western and, and Asian cultures together, but it was kind of a Caucasian or, you know, you know rather than... It was, it was a lot more than just white people in this, this continent, right? And so, and so, um, so, you know, maybe it was 
appropriate 50 years ago, maybe for a group of white people, it primarily was, maybe, except for the teachers who were Japanese. Um, uh, but then if you look at the, there are other values that come along with the statues. And if you go again to the Asian Art Museum, uh, there are some Buddha statues that are up on these amazing kind of pyramids of structure and like steps and like there. And you go up and you have to look up and then there's like a door in front of it. And usually the door is open so you can see it. But it kind of gives the idea that Buddha is something transcendent, something quite far removed, not kind of of this world and something you can cut off from. And that expresses a certain understanding and values about what Buddhism, religion, society is. And then other uh, Buddhist traditions, they have the Buddha, um, a little bit like the one we have, where the Buddha is uh, uh, sitting on the ground. And uh, there's no structure to be sit on, no high elevation, no door in front of it. Um, uh, some like Cambodian Buddhists sometimes, I don't, they don't even have, like they have a little bit of ground underneath them there, but they're like, they really feel like they're simple, ordinary, and beautiful statues, but they kind of don't have that sense of being something transcendent and aloof and distant. And in fact, sometimes you see in different Buddhist countries that Buddhism has different values and hierarchies and the role of the clergy, the monastics, and how close they are to society, how removed they are. And that expresses social values that uh, then get embedded in in the statue, with the ideas of what the Buddha is. And then we have um, uh, uh, the stories that uh, then about the Buddha and different cultures, different societies, different, will choose, among all the different stories, will either choose stories of the, from the early days of the Buddha's life, because these stories exemplify different values. In fact, some modern scholars of religion say that we often think of religions as having beliefs, but the primary thing that, that uh, brings religions into society and the people that motivate people are the stories of the religion. And so different groups choose different stories or they make up new stories. And a lot of the stories that we think are from the Buddha's time about his life were made up maybe 500 years after the Buddha. They're not really, you know, represent what happened back then. Even the name Siddhartha, maybe, you know, that's supposed to be his given name. The first indication that that might be his name uh, appeared in writing, in text, that uh, were at least 500 years after the Buddha. So maybe they... So maybe everyone knew that that was his name and they just talked about it until they, they wrote it down. But uh, I think it's a fair to at least guess that uh, it was made up uh, name that was applied to him much later. Um, and there are other stories applied to him. And if we come here to the modern West, uh, we see that in the, uh, you know, like the, in the convert Buddhist groups like the Vipassana group that you know, we started off mostly as a convert Buddhist group, mostly a group of white people. And so there were certain values that we had and things that we needed. And so the stories that we tell tend to be the ones that supported the needs, psychological needs of those people. In fact, probably one of the most common stories is the story of when the Buddha is touching the earth. And, um, and the Buddha, before, before he was enlightened, people had doubts about, he had doubts about whether he was worthy or was, uh, uh, he deserved or something to be enlightened. And, um, and, uh, and that was like the last challenge he had. And so uh, in his lack of questioning whether he was worthy to be enlightened, he called upon the earth to bear his witness. 
And so what he's doing there, he's just t- it's called the earth-touching mudra. His hand goes over his knees and reaches down to touch the earth. And the earth was seen as a kind of a, a deity uh, who's been around for millennia and had seen all the past lifetimes of the Buddha and seen how much the Buddha had trained and how much the Buddha had done and sacrificed to become the Buddha in his last lifetime. And so uh, he asked for the earth to bear witness and the earth shook and said, yes, he's worthy. You know, so he had this, uh, it was okay to get enlightened. Well, when many of the Western teachers uh, uh, teach this story, they, they neglect to say that it's this earth goddess. Uh, they say it's the earth, which just feels very nice, you know. You know, it's kind of maternal, the good earth, you know, knows or something. And they don't tell us part of the story that it's looking back over his many lifetimes and all the work he did. They just say the earth shook and affirmed that he had a right to be enlightened. And then some of them will say that, that um, this is kind of a symbolic way of saying that uh, nature is here to support us and affirm our right to be here and our right to wake up and be free. And a kind of a radical self-acceptance which is a very nice message for people who feel somehow, you know, a little bit insecure or unworthy or something. Um, and that's kind of a certain kind of, kind of background for people. So, so there's a choice about what we emphasize and what we do. So um, one of the other common stories that are told, uh, which uh, is pretty universal and goes back, not, doesn't go back to the time of the Buddha itself, but the, this kind of story goes back very early, maybe to the time of the Buddha, but not, a, not associated with the Buddha, associated with other things. And then later it was associated with the Buddha. And that's a story of the Buddha's renunciation when he left, left home. And they say that uh, he had a privileged life. He was an aristocrat, you know, prince, and that uh, he lived a protected life and uh, where he didn't see a lot of the suffering of the world around him. And so um, uh, he was intentionally protected from it. His father didn't want him to see that, the suffering of the world, because the father was afraid that if he saw the suffering of the world, he would give up the family business and, and wouldn't become a king, but rather would renounce and become a renunciant, seeking spiritual life. But uh, uh, because of various things, the father wasn't successful in protecting his son from from uh, suffering. So the Buddha at one point finally saw uh, a sick person and the story, amazing story is that he'd never seen anybody sick before. When he was, he was, at this point he was about 26 years old. And so he'd never seen a sick, per, sick person and um, he asked, what's that? And his companion said, that's a sick person. It's the nature of all people to be sick. And that's kind of, you know, shook him up. The next day he saw an old person and he said, what's that? <laughs> and he said, well, that's an old person. And uh, it's the nature of all people if they live long enough to become old. And that shook him up. And then next day the, he went, went out and he saw a dead person. What's that? That's a dead person. It's the nature of all people sooner or later to be dead. And that shook him up. And that shook him up and, uh, and then it goes, the story goes on and then the next day he went out and he saw a renunciant, he saw a kind of a monastic person, someone who had gone out to become a religious mendicant, who had a very calm, peaceful demeanor. And uh, that got his attention, and he said, what's that? And then he was explained, that's a religious mendicant who's gone off to find enlightenment and the liberation from suffering. 
And that inspired him, didn't shake him up. And with that, he decided that he would go off and, uh, and search for enlightenment. And it's a nice story because it addresses the basic existential issues that everyone has to address. And uh, sooner or later, and some people put it off for decades before they really wake up to this is happening. Some people I've known don't really face, I know, I know a person who in his 80s uh, who still doesn't want to talk about death. It's like, you know, you, know, you bring it up and, you know, no, you know, don't bring, don't, we don't talk about that. That's as far into the future. It's, there's no point. And, um, and so at what point in life do issues like of sickness, issues of old age, issues of death, limitations of those they bring us, force us to kind of reconsider our lives and look at our life in a deep new way, in a deep way. And, um, and maybe the limitations that those provide, sometimes when we're sick, some people get sick or have accidents and injured quite early in life. And they have, to, and their whole promise of a future life and what their life's going to be is pulled out from, away from, under, from under them. And what's important, what's valuable for them, what they thought their life was about, their purpose is gone. And then how do you contend with that? What do you find? How do you deal with that? As people get older, some people struggle with all kinds of issues and uh, can't do what they used to do. And then do we just get more and more bitter or more and more kind of feel troubled by that? Or is there some way of facing that and, and coming to some place of, uh, of peace, of freedom in the midst of that? And also in the face of death, same thing. And so, one way of understanding Buddhism, it was the whole Buddhist enterprise, the practice of it, the teachings of it, uh, are designed to address those issues. And so, it's really meant for, so people who have serious illnesses and that limitation, people who have serious issues of getting old and struggling with that, or people who are dying, um, welcome. <laughs> this, is, this is set up for this. This is not a hobby to do this Buddhism. It's not, uh, you know, merely a matter of stress reduction, but it was designed for something very important, very central to people's lives, with a very hopeful, a very hopeful um, uh, kind of message that these things don't have to limit us. It's possible to kind of somehow face them, be in the middle of them, and find freedom. I uh, visited someone recently who... Um, After I visited, I thought, this is interesting. Because she, as far as uh, I could, many of the obvious characterizations or obvious choices that a monastic makes, Buddhist monastics, um, this person was experiencing. The person, as far as I could tell, because she was like 95 uh, and in hospice, there was no more sex. Sexual, sexual activity probably wasn't going on. That's probably given up. She was in a nursing home. She had moved there. She had given up her home, left her home. Monastics leave their home. She only had really, I think, as far as I could tell, one set of clothes or a couple of sets of clothes. Monastics are not supposed to have more than two sets of robes. She was dependent on whatever food people brought her. Monastics are dependent on what's brought to them and given to them. She had um, 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 
she couldn't choose where she lived in the nursing home. She was just assigned a bed with a room and with a review out of whatever window was given, she was assigned where to live and she had to accept what, she, what was given. Uh, she had very few possessions because all her possessions, can't bring a lot of possessions with her into that. She did have a, um, I thought it was kind of interesting, kind of inspiring or something, that she had um, a book by Bernie Sanders <laughs> and a magazine called Progressive. <laughs> and uh, I kind of, you know, kind of like I looked at that twice, 95 years old, and, and I was kind of inspired. And, um, but she didn't have any possessions. And I could probably go on and other things that, you know, radical limitation. She had her hair still. Monastics don't have hair. And um, so she had to, because of her age and her illness and what she had, she had to give up so many things that many people are accustomed to in their lives, many things that people depend on for happiness and well-being. And when I saw her, she was happy. She was in hospice. She was radiant, actually quite radiant, sitting in a wheelchair. And uh, in this life that was so radically, you know, like a monastic. So what we have here in Buddhism, we have the Buddha and other monastics that are representatives, not that we all should become monastics, but representatives of a possibility. A possibility of not waiting until we're 95 and in hospice to somehow contend with this and find our peace and happiness, letting go of everything, but to do this much earlier in life, to really kind of face these issues and, and uh, find a way through them so that uh, whether uh, consciously or unconsciously, we're not really depending on all these things that um, are unreliable, that we can't guarantee they're always going to be there. That we find some freedom from attachment, from clinging, from biased assumptions, from all kinds of things, from attachments to self. And so the Buddha and the monastics represent this. And I think that in representing, you know, in, in this story about sickness, old age, and death, and the monastic, it's kind of a universal message that... Uh, that many Buddhist traditions share. And so it's kind of a common denominator. But I, in thinking about this today, um, I was thinking, yeah, it's nice, but it's almost like maybe, and sometimes it's very concrete, sickness, old age, and death. But it's also, you know, kind of, because it's kind of universal, I wonder if it also can blind us to what's particular, or what's more, you know, more. And I wondered if, what, ha- what would happen what would our stories have been like if the Buddha left his privileged palace, living a privileged life, where he had been protected, didn't have to deal with the oppression of our society, the racism of our society, the wars that exist in our society, the conflicts between, peop- between people. And what if he had left the palace and saw someone living in poverty? Someone said, and he said, what's that? Well, that's a poor person. You, you'll, no one ever knows when, they, when they'll become, they might become poor if they're not already. And the next day he goes out and he saw someone being the recipient of tremendous acts of racism and prejudice. He said, what's that? And the Buddha said, and the Buddha was, said, was told, that's racism. And if you live long enough and travel enough in enough places in the world, probably everyone's a recipient of some kind of bias and prejudice like that. But it's a, and, it's a, well, and what if he kind of went out and what he saw was people fighting war or the, or the police officers, uh, you know, that many people trust, 
shooting unarmed people of a different kind of ethnicities and races and stuff. And the Buddha said, what's that? And I don't know what kind of answer they would have given, but you get the kind of idea. And what would, that, what would our stories be like then? What would, how would the response be then? And does the, is it the same path as the, the path of dealing with sickness, old age and, age and death? And I'd like to suggest it is very much the same path. It's the path of being, uh, sh- uh, really showing up and looking deeply inside for where our attachments are, where our biases are, where our prejudice is, where we, f- uh, you know, with the idea of becoming free of self, you know, this idea of not-self in Buddhism. Um, we keep emphasizing that, so those of you who might know, not-self, no-self. But what if, instead of saying that as much as we do, we said, um, not-other, no-other. Because isn't the idea of self, strong sense of self, creates a strong sense of other? But what if the, te- the, the, the tradition emphasized more no other rather than always no self? Would that create a different kind of emphasis and openness to our society and all that? And, um, and so we have this practice of mindfulness, for example, where we learn to sit. Uh, it's a fantastic practice where it is kind of internal and personal, we sit and learn to sit still and quiet and learn not to be agitated, learn not to be distracted, learn not to recoil and turn away from things, but to really sit and be present for ourselves in a deep way. And we see all kinds of things in there. We see attachments, we see clinging, we see fears and resistance. And many times the teachings make a kind of, you know, Attachment to self, attachment to sense pleasure, attachment to aversion and resistance. That's nice. But what if the teaching said more uh, attachment to othering? Attachment to holding other people in, you know, in, a, in a category or having you know, prejudice that's uh, uh, inflicted on them. What if it's attachment to bias? What's sort of attachment to hatred towards others or de- you know, desires towards one group over another? having kind of, what would it, you know, those are just as much attachment as the ones that are more personal. And I believe that as we sit and be quiet, that sooner or later we have to face them all that we might have. And the remarkable thing about sitting in meditation very, very quietly is that, five minutes, the uh, the remarkable thing is that we get to, um, sooner or later we get to see all the ways that we, a clear, clean heart gets muddied. All the ways in which a clear, clean mind gets muddied. All the way in which a clean, clear kind of open-handedness to the world gets muddied. And it's, I think sooner or later, we have to, we have to also then, uh, if we're gonna live in society, we have to also look at how we muddy our hearts and minds with the social issues of our times and our relationship to it. And I'd like to believe that, um, that uh, this message of the Buddha, the Buddha calling upon the earth to show it deserves to be awakened, the freedom that the Buddha attained, is one that has tremendous social implications, that it involves a willingness, a real willingness, and an understanding of the importance of looking at seeing how we live in society with other people, 
how we share our, our world with other people. And that it's not a, just a personal thing that we do for ourselves. So personally, we deal better with sickness, old age, and death. But we really are able to see everyone as someone who shares these universal qualities and suffering and old age and death and sickness. And in doing that, being able to open our hearts to all of them in an active way, not a passive way. Because I think all, all too often people think, um, oh, that doesn't apply to me. But what if we are actively involved in considering this and looking at deep inside? What's really here in us? What's really recognizing it? So that as we let go of self and self-attachment, so it really becomes the equivalent of letting go to othering. And the attachment we have to somehow relate to others as whatever way that exists when there's implicit bias or prejudice and all that. So I think that um, every generation, every <coughs> culture, every society <coughs> projects different values onto the Buddha. And I'd like to believe that the Buddha represents <coughs> something that society thinks is really good. And it becomes a concentration of goodness in this Im- image. And for Buddhists, it's a concentration of goodness that involves ethical life, concentration of goodness that comes with a deep purification or clarification of the heart, the unmuddying of the heart, and the unmuddying of the mind. So some of the most beautiful qualities, the freest qualities of compassion, of love, of joy, and generosity, and wisdom can operate. I'd like to believe that, but I think uh, as kind of the American society is going through its convulsions and going through its changes, that maybe we need a little bit of different stories. And since down through the ages, Buddhists have no shortage of making up new stories. But no one admits it, because then it's that they're doing it. They just say, oh, the Buddha said. So maybe we can make up a new story about the Buddha leaving the palace. And maybe he didn't just see three, four, it's called heavenly messengers. Maybe he saw more. Maybe he saw a poor person. Maybe he saw an oppressed person, someone struggling with racism. Maybe he saw a society at war and in conflict. Um, and his choice to, be, to, to go forth out into the world, out of his privileged life. And he you know, left the palace and really was in the society of his times. Is a teaching for all of us, inspiration for all of us, that we, can t- we too can do this. So that when we're 95 and in hospice, that uh, not only can we be happy about being free in that kind of situation, settled and let go of so much in that limitation, but also we can maybe feel happy about that we've maybe made a difference in our society over our lifetime and really helped help our society as a whole to address some of these important issues that I think belong to all of us. So in a, one or two minutes, we're going to have uh, some children, I think, have um, found the baby Buddha. He, he, gets, he gets, here in America, he gets born under uh, redwood trees. <laughs> in ancient India, he was born under Bodhi trees. And, uh, and so they found him, and, and, uh, and they're going to bring him in, and uh, I think they're going to chant. We'll make a little space for them so he can carry the pagoda in the, that they've made. And then I'll talk a little bit. We'll do a little... Uh, Buddhist, traditional Buddhist ritual around this, and I'll talk you through it, what we're doing.
and um, and then we'll probably end at the usual time. So what they're chanting is the Pali uh, words for "May all beings be happy." Is that a nice thing? May all beings. Maybe we can emphasize the all. Sata suki hontu sabe sata suki hontu sabe sata suki hontu sabe sata suki hontu Sabe sata saki hontu Sabe sata suki hontu Sabe sata suki hontu So thank you for bringing us the baby Buddha and thank you for decorating the pagoda to celebrate. And uh, in many ways, this, the celebrating the baby birth of the Buddha is a nature uh, celebration because he was born outdoors under a tree. And uh, here we have, he was born out there under the redwood trees where you found him. And, and, uh, and so we have all these you know, el- flowers representing the, you know, the nature elements that brought in here. And uh, it's a very uh, unusual baby, at least there's a story, and that is that, uh, what's he doing there? Can you tell me what he's doing in the Buddha? What's he doing, the the baby Buddha? Uh, He's what? He's putting one finger up? Yeah, and what's the other finger doing? Supposed to be pointing down. That's what, that's what it looks like. Yeah. And then the other thing that he's doing, yeah. what? He's pointing down. And is he sitting or laying down? Or what's he doing? He's standing. He's standing. Yeah. Now he's just been born. <laughs> is that a little bit unusual? Yeah. 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 So that means it's a strange story. And um, so after he was born. He, he, did, he took seven steps. Did you take seven steps when you were born? No. No, probably not. <laughs> and so he took seven steps, and then he took, pointed uh, to up above him and pointed below, and then he spoke. Did you speak when you were born? No. no. Oh, you, I know that my... Yeah, I, was, I wasn't there, I think, when I was born, <laughs> that I remember. But, um, but when I, my, my sons were born... They didn't speak either, but they cried. But the Buddha didn't cry, he spoke. And he, he stood there and he said, um, uh, kind of heaven above, earth below, I alone am the world-honored one. Now, in most places I know, if I said that, or someone said that, we wondered about their sanity and, and whether they had some kind of conceit going on or delusion but heaven above earth below I alone am the earth uh, the the world honored one 
But the way, it's such a strange story, but the way we understand it is that everyone should be able to say that for themselves, which of course becomes, doesn't make sense if everyone's the, the best in the world, the most honorable person in the world. But there's way, some way that it's true that each of us is very special and very important. And each of us is the person that we most honor. So this idea of each and every one of us is important. Each and every one of us is someone we want to respect and honor. And each of you is that way, that someone we want to honor. So we're very happy that you're here and you're here together with the Buddha up on here. And so what we do is um, we're going to do a little chanting and, and uh, what we're going to chant is first what's called the homage to the Buddha. Some people don't want to, you know, not ready to pay homage to him or kind of say thanks to him for all he did. But the Buddha himself uh, didn't emphasize taking refuge in him. He emphasized you take refuge in his awakening, in this unmuddied heart, mind that he discovered. And um, so we'll take first do the chanting in Pali, and then we're going to chant uh, what's called the refuges, where we go for refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. Again, the refuge in Buddha is to, really is to his awakening, a capacity for a free heart. And the refuge in the Dharma is the practices and teachings that point towards this free heart, which in the teachings I gave today is not just a free heart that's personal, but the free heart that's collective, all our hearts together. And then the, free, and then the uh, refuge in the community, the Sangha, is refuge of not only the people we practice with and support us, but maybe it's the community of all living beings we share this planet with. So we'll do that chanting, and while we're chanting, if you guys want to um, take the ladles, and because the custom in the world is when a baby is born, we wash a baby clean with the water. And, uh, and the idea is that as you wash those bowls, the Buddha, is you're, you're helping for all the audience here, all these adults, to get a little cleaner. <laughs> and like the washing away their attachments and their, you know, what, their, you know, their foibles, whatever. So, so this is, uh, so those, you don't know the chants, uh, you can just be quiet or hum along or, yeah. But you can just chant with me. Namo tasa bhagavato aharato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato aharato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhasa mudam saranangachami namam saranangachami Sangam saranam gachami Nudhyampi budam saranam gachami Nudhyampi dhammam saranam gachami Nudhyampi sangam saranam gachami Tatiampi mudam saranam gachami 
Dutiyami Dutam Saranam Gachami Tatiyampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Thank you for watching the Buddha. So, um, the other custom that we do, it's nice to do, is, uh, so you all are here with all these adults, and you did this very special thing. You discovered the baby Buddha for us, which is a pretty amazing thing to do. And um, what do you think the very best thing that the Buddha represents? Do you have any idea? Yes. Freedom. What else? What do you think? Do you have any? Peace. Peace, yes. And, uh, and uh, what about over there? Either, or the dad maybe knows. <laughs> He's not sure. So the one thing I'm thinking about is compassion, which is a kind of love for each other. So all these people out here, they need a lot of freedom, a lot of peace, and a lot of compassion. And since you guys were the ones who discovered the baby Buddha today and made the flower pagoda, you're in a very special role. If you bow to these people like this, that will really inspire them and encourage them to be more interested in freedom and peace and love. It's kind of like giving them a blessing. You want to do that? Well, you can do it three of us together or the four of us together. So you get up here like this, and then... They're going to bow back. You ready? And then you bow to them. May you all be free, peaceful, and filled with compassion for all beings. Thank you all. And um, now, if some of you need extra help, you're welcome to come up here and wash the baby Buddha. And as you do that, know that you're washing yourself. Thank you all very much. (laughs) 